Hi, I'm Stephen Crafty. I'm here at RMIT University and I'm presenting Talking Design. I'm with an architect um, who just seems to be getting stronger and stronger um, in the work that um, in they're doing. Um, his name's Jeremy McLeod uh, from Breathe Architecture. So welcome to the show. Thanks, Jeremy. Stephen. Jeremy, you're an interesting one. Um, <laughs> That's good to know. <laughs> uh, well, I thought I saw you present um, something years ago. You're not going to bring yourself. Well, Stephen. I think I might. And I said to you after, I said, Jeremy, I think you can do better than that. And I think you realised that you could because I said to you at the time, I said, just because you, you build something and get it through council, that doesn't mean it's an award winner. But this year, I think I'll be seeing you on the podium um, several times. Tell me a little bit about your background. You started at TAS University. Yes, I, I, um, I did my undergraduate at the University of Tasmania in environmental design. So back then, which would have been 1990, I was interested in, you know, sustainability. I had hippie parents. Um, I guess I was brought up with those um, those morals or those mm -hmm. ethics. So I was interested in sustainability, studied environmental design, and then stayed on at UTAS to do my postgraduate in architecture. Mm -hmm. When I finished um, architecture, I came back to Melbourne. It was just post the recession in 97. You know, there were cranes on the skyline finally. And um, the only job I could get was working on the casino along with every other Melbourne firm. So I started work at SJB and worked there for a year uh -huh. and then went on to Catsalitis for four years. So why did you want to start your own practice? When I started at Catsalitis, um, they'd just finished Melbourne Terrace, which I just found absolutely incredible. They were starting work on Republic Tower, which again was a great building. Like, totally inspiring. I'd just seen the St Andrews Beach House that um, Nanda had done with his crew. So For people was, who don't know the St Andrews Beach House, it's just like a big timber crate that's yeah. been washed up on the shore. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it was really minimal. And I just remember, you know, reading Architecture Australia and seeing this, you know, you know, whenever it was back in 94 and seeing this really simple, beautiful, you know, almost washed up structure on the shore. That's exactly right. Really simple. And so... Um, Working at Catsalitis at that time, when I started my, you know, my, my interview, there was eight people working at Catsalitis. Um, by the time I'd started a month later, they'd merged with um, Nation Fender. There was 28 people. And by the time I left, there was 50 people working in Collins Street. So they'd moved from the Melbourne Terrace office into mm -hmm. Collins Street. So it was a much, much bigger affair. And um, there were a lot of very talented people there. And I was a very small fish in a very big pond there. And I felt that... To do the stuff that I was really interested in, I, I needed to be, you know, in a smaller practice. So you started Breathe Architecture when? What year? Uh, 2001. And what was the motivation for it? I mean... Oh, look, at, at the time, you know, I'd been at Cats Leaders four years, and like I say, you know, like there was a lot of talent in the, in the field then, and, and I just didn't see myself, you know, being able to rise above it. <laughs> So I thought that the only place where I could actually do, you know, projects and make a difference was, you know, to start my own thing. So do you get nervous? I mean, actually starting your own practice must be pretty frightening for, you know, just going out on your own. Yeah, look, it was terrifying. I also had, you know, at the time I had two children. So I, I was separated. I had shared, shared care with two kids. I had no money. But, you know, as all architects do, they're sort of driven by, um, you know, I guess their obsession to make, you know, so how good, do you, good architecture. Jer um, Jeremy, how do you get the ball rolling? Like, where, how does the first project kind of come through the door? Yeah, well, so obviously when I left, I already had a project on us. I had one one house in queue. So I had a, you know, my first renovation was, you know, a budget of whatever it was in 
in 2001, I think the budget was $80,000. That was my first renovation. And then the hardest thing is getting your first thing built. Once you build that, you can get it photographed. Once you can get it photographed, you can find other work. So yeah. during that time, I, I did some contracting work for um, Chris Godsell, Sean Godsell's younger brother. So um, he'd started his own practice. He was at Catsalitas with me, and he went off and started his own practice. I worked um, contracting for him for a while. Um, and then once I got my first project built, I was able to then get other work because yeah. obviously you've got the photos of the first project. Other people see it. Yeah. Other people talk about it. And then you get other work. Jeremy, you've um, uh, designed some very interesting houses. I saw one recently that was quite extraordinary, very complicated. When I was interviewing uh, Fairly Batch from your office, yeah, yeah. I kept saying to her, look, I don't get it. You, yeah. What do you mean? What do you mean? How does this work? Tell me a little bit about that house because it was a heritage um, streetscape yeah. and you were working with a very run-down cottage that was on the site. Yeah, yeah. So I guess, you know, firstly, the way that Breathe approaches projects is that each project we start with a conceptual framework. And, you know, that's, you know, that might be generated by the site context or it might be... Mm generated by the history of the site or it might be generated by the client themselves and in the case of Stonewood it was um it was complicated Stephen because there was two sort of um overlapping sort of conceptual ideas that sort of came together it was a heritage area wasn't it yeah so it was the the heritage context and a heritage overlay on a street that was actually you know very very ordinary in terms of its um heritage quality or character and so we had a lot of trouble understanding why there was a heritage overlay on it in the first place. So we met with the heritage architect and actually tried to understand why the heritage overlay was was applied. And it was actually applied because of a pre-existing building that was built in the 1850s. Uh, Not on the site? No, two, um, two doors up from the site. Um, it was a two-storey bluestone cottage. But then in front of that, in 1906, there was a renovation put on the front of it. A Victorian facade was put on the front of this bluestone cottage. So it was quite an ordinary Victorian facade, but the heritage overlay actually talked to the bluestone two-storey um, structure behind it. So were council actually wanting you to do a bluestone structure? On this property? Well, by, by the time we got to it, um, yeah. the council didn't actually know why the heritage overlay was there. So the heritage architect actually unpacked all of that for us. Yeah. And so we're able to get to the crux of what the issue was, which was about this old bluestone structure. And so our, our building responded to that two-storey bluestone structure. So when you look at an, I guess... Um, you know, Scale? Yeah, well, well, if you look at, at, a, at a, you know... Um, a site plan, an urban diagram of of our building sitting in the street. Our building aligns with the bluestone cottage, not the Victorian cottage at the front of it. It aligns in scale with that bluestone cottage, so it's two storeys. Um, it aligns with the bluestone cottage in terms of its form, in that it's um, it's got a simple pitch, you know, at the front to the north, and um, its windows are the same proportions. The only difference is that stonewood is made of um, sugar gum tiles so it's of the it's same proportion same of proportions the, of as the, the blue stone and and those tiles are on a steel frame and so that steel frame can open up depending on the weather conditions so when the building's closed up it looks like the bluestone cottage would have done in 1850 after of course the sugar gum's aged a couple of years and it's gone from its brown to a silvery gray um, but in summer, uh, 
you know, the building closes down. But in winter, when you want to get the sun into the building, you open this thing up, and the facade to the north is glazed. Mm. So it, it goes from being, you know, a Georgian in character to opening up to being you know, almost, yeah, contemporary or, you know. How difficult uh, was it to get that concept across to the clients? Because it's a difficult concept when you're, I mean, getting a house through is generally problematic anyway. Clients mightn't understand the plans or the models, but how do you kind of talk something like that through with clients who aren't particularly architecturally literate? Well, I guess, you know, we're lucky that the clients that you know, come to us generally, come to us for a reason. So they've seen our, you know, a folio of works. In this instance, we, you know, I mean, all great projects are contingent on great clients. You know, if I look back at all of our really successful projects, it, they're always linked to great clients. Um, the wrong client hamstrings the architect. The Ge- micromanaging client hamstrings the architect and we can't do our best work. So, Jeremy, when you presented the scheme to them, mm. um, did they say, look, we don't quite understand it, but we'll let you go with it? Or did they have to kind of really get to the nuts and bolts? Oh, look, it was quite interesting. Um, so the, the, there were two, obviously it was a couple and they had three kids, but um, Katie was a composer. And so she goes through a sort of conceptual process when she's composing music. So for her, she goes through her own conceptual or creative process. So she was very interested in the process that we went through. So she wanted to understand the process that we'd got to to get to this. And for her, it seemed as you know important as the building was that the process was the there. process was really important. For Keith, it was about the functionality. Mm. And Keith loved the idea that this house could be both introverted. So if they wanted to, they could you know keep to themselves, close the building up, or it could be extroverted. So when they wanted to entertain or they wanted to engage with the street, they could open this thing up. The other project that you've just recently finished and... Uh, it's quite extraordinary, and I think it, I did an architectural tour through there a few weeks ago. Mm. Amazing reaction. I mean, all the people who visited your home on this tour were just, you know, they're blown away. I mean, I think it made them think that apartment living can be just so much better than what we presented today. For those who don't know, it's called The Commons. It's in Brunswick, and it's really a very sustainable, environmentally friendly development that kind of ticks all the boxes, but it's actually it's the spaces. They're actually very generous, and they're designed for people who actually want to be there rather than just these tiny little boxes that are just done uh, developer-driven. Tell me how that evolved, Jeremy. Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, I, I bought that site a long time ago in 2007 after frustration, I guess, dealing with developers and the developer market. I think there's a fundamental problem with the way that we build our housing in Melbourne or in Australia, which is that it's driven by developers. And, um, you know, for any developers out there, I'm sorry for what I'm about to say, but, you know, developers think that architects make terrible developers because they measure the success of a development by the spreadsheet, not by the built outcome. I think architects make fantastic developers because it's not just the bottom line on the spreadsheet, but it's about that built heritage that they leave. You know, in Brunswick... um, so tell, tell people um, some of the differences that you have in this building. You have a cafe at the bottom, artist studios, you have a rooftop garden. Yeah, well, so I guess, you know, when we embarked on the Commons, when we started that project, the idea was that this building would be um, a triple bottom line development, that it would be financially viable, that it would be socially sustainable. So the people that 
lived in it would want to live in it, they would enjoy living in it, but also that it would be socially sustainable in terms of the community, so it would engage with the community, and thirdly, that it would be environmentally sustainable. And um, I think a, a lot of uh, the problem with um, Melbourne apartments are that they're, these days the space standards just keep on getting smaller and smaller Well, and smaller. there was an article recently in the paper saying that we're in floor area, we're one of the, the smallest in the world. Yeah, that's right. And, the, and that same article in The Age said that, that 85% of apartment stock is bought by, by investors. investors. Um, so why are we doing all that? Well, why are we building just for the sake of it when really it's just an investment? It's not really going to be used. Yeah, well, it's because the, uh, the people driving it are developers. And, um, you know, that's, that's you know... Uh, developers are housing, you know, making housing for our future. How did the council respond? Because there's no there's no off-street car parking. You've only got bicycle racks for 72 bikes, so no cars. Uh, there are things that the council must have said, look, I don't know if we can approve this because it hasn't got off-street car parking. I mean, were there issues there or did they kind of get it from the start? No, look, uh, when, we, when we did it, it was the first building in Australia that had... Largely, so this is um, 16 two-bedrooms, um, eight one-bedroom apartments, and like you say, it has a cafe and a retail space downstairs which engage with the street because we were able to do that because we took the car park out. So rather than having a big driveway, we've got you know a, a narrow you know entry into a foyer mm. and you bring your bikes through to the back. Um, and then we also put the artist studios there because... Prior to this, all these old warehouses in Brunswick were occupied by artists, and every time a developer develops those sites, all the artists get pushed further out. Mm. So the idea was that they could actually stay. Um, but so when we talked to the council about, you know, that we weren't going to put cars in there, there was obviously a lot of trepidation because since the 1950s, traffic engineers have had more and more say mm. over development proposals. So we end up designing our cities and our buildings for cars instead of for people. Mm drives me crazy so um if you think about all of the great buildings in melbourne and some of the great streetscape you know like everyone whenever you see photos of melbourne it's degrave street it's flinders lane all of those old buildings were built you know um in you know 1900 through 1915 none of them have car parking they were all designed for people <laughs> yeah. so um we've just returned to that so a lot of the comments is about making the a building for humans rather than a building cars it's more spacious so we tried to save money on the basement car parking we um we stripped out things that we thought were unnecessary or unrequired so there's no plasterboard ceilings in the apartments instead we've got the concrete soffit of the slab above exposed so you get to see all the formwork i think it's interesting because the people who went on the tour and went through the apartment i think some of them lived in grand houses, but they all of them said to me afterwards, we could live in here. And I thought that was a really lovely remark because they've got the choice of wherever they want to live. But there was something about it. It wasn't cookie made. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of recycled materials. The kitchen wasn't um, was quite different. You had mild steel splashbacks. You had copper sinks. You had concrete benches. It was the type of thing that most people associate with the customised house, not a development of this size. Yeah, That's the other thing I'm finding, that all the apartments, because it's easy to produce the same design, multiply it by 300, and that's yeah. what you get. Yeah. Here it really looked as if there was time and and time spent on really developing something very bespoke for every apartment. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and that was the case. And I, and I, I think that um, 
there's something to be said for sort of, you know, these fine grain developments. So there's this kind of sweet spot, um, you know, for communities to live in buildings, you know, of apartments between sort of 20 and 80, you know. So in this case, there's 24 apartments. So everyone in the building knows, knows each, each other. Yeah. So we have, you know, blackboards, you know, painted on the wall downstairs and upstairs. We leave notes for each other. We had a owner's corporation meeting. I've actually bought an apartment in this building because, you know, um, when I couldn't get finance to build this, you know, myself as, you know, an architect with, you know, five other architects. The bank said no to start with. Um, the bank said no because by the time we had our permits in place, it took a long time. But the city of Moreland finally gave us approval, and in fact, they've been fantastic. You know, yeah. um, are they using it, Jeremy, as a um, uh, a model to go forward and telling other people to go and look at the commons to get ideas and perhaps this is the well, future? Well, I, I think that what's happened is that when when we proposed the commons with you know zero car parking, obviously one of the the objectors that were objecting against the comments, it was about car parking. And when I got up to speak at the council meeting about the fact that the people that live in the commons, you know, won't have a car space. They can never have a car space. It's in their contract of sale. And that it will actually mean that there's less cars on the street um, and that we had a very, very um, tight sort of green transport plan. So... I mean, you're right next to the railway line. Yeah. And yeah. and 500 metres away is the tram. Yeah, that's right. Even less. So why do you need a car? Yeah, absolutely. And the people that bought into this building, you know, they don't require a car. And we do have a go-get car share at the yeah. front for anyone that does need to drive. And so since we finished the Commons, the thinking about, you know, zero car um, developments has changed. And so what we've noticed is there's been lots of applications going to councils and also to VCAT where people have been using the commons as the model saying there's well, another, this actually works. Well, there's another development by Neo Metro in yeah. Smith Street yeah. and there's no off-street car parking. Yeah, and why would you need it in Smith Street, Collingwood? They're absolutely right. And and they've managed to sell them really quickly. Yeah. And so I think, I'd like to think people are starting to be greener and even if it's hippie-ish, which yeah. I think there's nothing wrong with that, um, the people are starting to think about how they want to live. Yeah, well, look, I don't think it is hippie-ish, you know, mm-hmm. I, and I think, you know, we've tried to make sure that at Breed that we've, you know, we try to do sophisticated, sustainable, responsible mm-hmm. design that's not associated with but being the, hippie. The other know? thing that's interesting is you've got really good outdoor space, which is unusual in an apartment. Yeah. You've got 80-square-metre uh, terraces. Oh, eight-square. Sorry, yeah. eight-square-metre terraces, yeah. 80s. Yeah, that'd <laughs> eight, be great. Eight square metre terraces and also um, courtyards, light wells going through the building yeah. for ventilation. Yeah, so this building is all naturally ventilated. So it's highly thermal, thermally efficient. It's all double glazed. We've got these great sort of timber lift and slide doors, um, which, you know, it's very unusual to get timber doors in an apartment. Um, and, yeah, so we, we don't... This building doesn't have any air conditioning. So our running costs are incredibly low. So as an apartment owner in there, my electricity bill um, for the last two months is $22 for usage. It's amazing. And, and $70 for metering <coughs> costs. So the metering costs, you know, through my electricity mm. provider are much, much higher than my actual usage. My hot water bill for the last two months is $16. So my running costs living in this building are, are tiny, yeah. which has been great. Yeah. Well, look, I hope, hope people start moving in that direction because I don't think Melbourne needs any more cheap, nasty apartments that really you can't move in. And that's before the furniture's even bought in. And um, look, thanks so much for coming on the show, Jeremy. I um, I think we'll be hearing a lot more about Breathe architecture going forward. <laughs> thanks, but um, 
Look, I think it's the ideas, and and I think when I went through your apartment for the first time on this tour, people were speechless, and I think they all thought, why isn't there more of this? So I'm just hoping, going forward, that people start learning from your example and saying, look, we can live in a different way. You know, it doesn't have to be the same. Well, I have just bought the site across the road, Stephen, so I'm about to do another one. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Thanks for coming in today. You've been with Stephen Crafty, Talking Design at RMIT University in Melbourne. Thanks so much for listening.